Southbridge. Good morning, those of you who are here in Theater 14, we're thankful for you and uh, I'm glad to be able to gather together. I was telling the first service, uh, as we were singing today, just thinking about uh, what Pastor Jed taught us a few weeks ago when he was talking about worship, how great it is to come together as a congregation and uh, to be able to sing these songs, and it's just symbolic of our unity. We're saying we believe the same things, that we worship the same God, and that we're trying to cry out to Him and sing praises of His name, and in a moment we'll open up God's Word and we'll do that together. We'll study together. There's just a a unique thing that takes place when we come together for that. It doesn't happen in the car. It doesn't happen in some of those other places where we worship. So it's wonderful. I'm glad to be gathered together with you and to be able to share those things. And uh, Carrie told you some of the stuff that's happening in the future when she gave the announcements, the Christmas Eve service, some of those things. And I just want to share with you a couple things that happened in the past. You know, a lot of times we talk about upcoming stuff and we kind of just, the other stuff we, we forget about. And uh, you may remember... Back in uh, the fall, September 9th, we started talking about how we were going to do some new groups at our church. The e-groups is what we were calling them. And uh, the two specific that were really new were our encounter groups. And just this morning, we ended one of our first ever uh, encounter groups. It was to do uh, basically equipping for new believers. And they were meeting at 9 o'clock here uh, every Sunday for, was it 10, 12 weeks? you remember 10 weeks, 12 weeks? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, both the same. Yeah, just keep going, Scott. Eight, eight weeks, yeah. That's not 10 or 12, but that's great. Uh, for eight weeks in a row, they were meeting uh, just down the hall during the 9 o'clock service, talking about things like prayer, how to share their faith, uh, baptism, what it really means, all those types of things. And uh, the first time we've ever done that. So I think we're getting better at equipping our body, and so Lord willing, um, those folks now know those things and can share them with others. And uh, that's our encounter groups that are taking place. Also our engage groups. Engage groups are groups that go into the community for the sake of the mission, of trying to connect people to Jesus for life, trying to share the gospel, trying to share the love of Christ in a very tangible way. And uh, one of those groups updated me last week. They sent me an email, and it was the Moore Square group. And they go down to Moore Square in partnership with another church in town, actually, uh, Cary Church of God. They provide the van and a kitchen, and uh, we provide people. And we had about 20 volunteers from Southbridge that went down to feed people in Moore Square and then share the gospel. And I was told by the leader, I think it was 250 people showed up to be fed that day. And uh, of those 250 people, um, 30 of them placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, we celebrate that for sure. And give the Lord a hand. And uh, the, the scripture tells us in Luke chapter 15 that all of heaven rejoices when one person, one sinner, repents and turns to God. And we have 30 people place their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's our vision. You know, we talk about 10x and we talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change. That's the vision, is that we'd see people that are lost, that are far from God, that would be connected to him, that their lives would be transformed. And God did a, a miracle to that. And he's using people in our church, people you're sitting next to today. And so the vision is happening. And he's accomplishing it through you. And so that's encouraging. Those are our engaged groups. Some of you are in different groups, embrace groups, engage groups, encounter groups. If you're in one um, and you're excited about what's happening, tell people because not everybody is. And so we'd love for you to be able to invite them to your group, whichever one it is, whichever kind you're involved in. And if you're not in one and you're interested, we've got a groups kiosk that's out there. And God's working. God's doing some stuff in our midst. And sometimes it's tough, sometimes it's exciting, uh, but we celebrate all that God's doing and how he's changing us. And today we're going to continue in our series we started last week. We started a series called uh, Timely Christmas, and we were talking about timing in that, and we're going to open up the scriptures and another passage of scripture today will be in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to get ahead in your iPad or phone or scroll, whatever you brought today, a copy of the scriptures, um, you can open those up to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be there in just a minute. Let me pray for us before we jump into the message. Father, I uh, thank you so much for your truth, um, that your word is truth, that your son Jesus Christ is the word, that he's living, that he came here, that he wanted to know us. And Father, that you want to know us. In these moments, I pray as we open your word, that you'd help us to know you more, that you'd show us who you are, that you'd reveal yourself through my words, through the words on the page, through the spirit speaking into our hearts, through that you'd, you'd just speak into us right now. I pray that we'd avail ourselves to you, that we'd become vulnerable to you, that we'd become open to you, that we would ask you just to to fill us up, and then go pour us out. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. Well, last week we began talking about uh, timely Christmas, and in that, uh, really I got to review last week's message, because today is a continuation of that. And what we were talking about was timing. And we talked about how oftentimes when we think about timing, we think about in two categories, good timing and bad timing. And good timing means you say the right thing at the right moment, or you're at the right place at the right moment, or something good happens for you. Bad timing is all the opposite of that stuff. And oftentimes we don't talk about what it really means when we say good timing and bad timing. We kind of just inherently know if something's good timing or bad timing. But last week we talked about what it means. And what it really means, we saw, is good timing is when our desired outcome takes place. Whatever we want to happen or whatever we would want to happen in a given circumstance. And so it's based on our desired outcome. Bad timing is the opposite. Whenever something we say the wrong thing at the wrong moment, put our foot in our mouth, we're at the wrong place, circumstances don't work out the way we want them to, that's bad timing. And we introduced a third topic that we oftentimes don't talk about and don't even think about. It's God's timing. And God's timing really supersedes good timing and bad timing. And it's regardless of our desired outcome, but we saw that it's always perfect. That God's timing is always perfect. And we saw that when we were looking at a passage of Scripture, Galatians chapter 4. It was the Christmas story from the book of Galatians. In Galatians 4 it says, But God, two key words that will change your life. God intervenes, God works, but God, and then NIV says, when the time had fully come, some of your translations may say, and in the fullness of time, at just the right time, a paraphrase, God sent his son, that's the plan, that's what he did, that's the Christmas story, very brief here, not a lot of details, born of a woman, there's a circumstance, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might be given the rights as full sons, that we could cry out to him, Abba, Father. And so we talked about plan, and we talked about circumstances, and we talked about results, and we talked about purpose, we talked about all those things, but we spent most of our time talking about that first phrase, when the time had fully come, his perfect timing. And I don't know if you remember, there's not going to be a quiz, but just as a reminder, do you remember what we talked about last week and how his timing was perfect in so many ways, specifically with this plan of redemption, his plan of buying us back, his plan of salvation where he sent his son. It was perfect timing theologically. And we talked about how it was perfect timing theologically because every people group was excited about a Messiah coming. If you were the Essenes was one group, it was kind of the people like in our time that want moral reformation of our country, don't clean up our act. That'd be what they were equivalent to. The Pharisees, uh, religious rulers, they wanted Judaism to be above the Roman rule. And so that was their thing. And then there were the Zealots. They just wanted revolution. They didn't have answers. They just wanted things different. And so there's every group you glance into, they all wanted Messiah to come and fulfill their agenda. They weren't looking for a Messiah that would be the biblical Messiah, that when you read the scriptures, you see it's clearly stated. Psalm 22, he's going to be crucified. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, he will be a suffering servant. No one saw that coming because they weren't looking for what the scriptures had said. They were looking for their own personal agenda. But they were excited. God sent his son at just the right time when they were excited, but they would kill him. And that was key. He had to die. We just sang in that song, his debt, he paid our debt, his love, that paid our debt. A debt had to be paid because we accumulated debt against God with our sin. Every time we sin, we're separating ourselves from God for the wages of sin is death. You can pay it through eternal separation from God, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's through his son, Jesus Christ. That's only made possible because they killed him. It's called the atonement where he died. Somebody had to pay the debt. He paid for it for us when he died on the cross. And so it was God's perfect timing because he had to send his son right when people were excited about a Messiah so they'd notice him and it would be a big deal, but that their hearts were hard enough that they would murder him. Perfect timing. And we also saw his timing was perfect historically. And we talked about some historical factors that allowed people to spread the gospel after Jesus died and rose again. 
And the Christians went out and began the church and all those types of things. There was a road system in place. There was the Greek language that was spoken in the Mediterranean world at that time, common amongst all the people, the different people groups, unique, gave an opportunity for evangelism. There was Roman peace. It was a forced peace, but it allowed people to travel freely amongst that road system. There was a synagogue system, which was, if you read the New Testament, it was like pre-established evangelism centers where people would go in and they first evangelize the Jews and then they go into the communities to the Gentiles. And it was God's perfect timing. Historically, it was God's perfect timing. Theologically, but not only that, we saw that God's timing is perfect in our individual lives. It's not just macro. It's not just redemption history. That God, in the micro versions in our lives, he doesn't let a sparrow fall to the ground apart from his will, from his plan. And he knows the very hairs on our heads. And everything that happens in our lives, even the stuff we don't like, and remember we talked about, his ways are different than our ways. Everything that happens, good stuff, bad stuff, it's all according to his perfect timing. Isaiah chapter 53 or 55 verse 3 says that his ways and our ways, they're not the same. His ways, our ways. Remember, they're not close. A lot of times we act like they're close. The scriptures say, as far as the heavens are from the earth, So different are his thoughts from our thoughts and his ways than our ways. So it's not like if we just had a few more answers, we'd understand. We're just not going to get it. He's got a plan that that we can't even comprehend because he knows stuff we don't even know. But he does it all for good. Now, sometimes we have a messed up view of what good is, but it's always according to his perfect timing. Now, you've got to remember that because we're going to talk about a different perspective of his timing today. In that story, we look kind of at the macro version, the macro level when we are in Galatians chapter 4, because it says, in the fullness of time, at just the perfect time, God sent his son, that's the plan, that's the Christmas story, born of a woman. And today we're going to look at God's timing from that woman's perspective. And not in the book of Galatians, but in the book of Luke. And if you have your Bibles or your scrolls or whatever you brought today, you open them up to Luke chapter 1. I'm kidding, I don't think anyone brings a stroll to church. I heard a couple people saying, wait, is there like somebody here? Is he wearing a robe? You know, what <laughs> If you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be on verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. And verse 1 through 25, the main thing that's talked about there is another miraculous birth. If you look at it, and I challenge you to go look at it because it's a real rich study. If you look at the birth announcement of John the Baptist and you look at the birth announcement of Jesus that are both given by the same angel, Gabriel, many people believe angels haven't spoken for about 400 years up to this point. And then the same angel comes and speaks to the exact opposite. There's so many parallels and there's so many contrasts between the two announcements. The exact opposite. Instead of a young woman, Mary, who's probably about 13 years old, to an old man, Zechariah. And instead of having a, a woman who's so young she's not at the stage of giving birth to a child, she hasn't done what's necessary to become pregnant, there's a woman whose womb's been closed her whole life and he opens her womb. So there's contrast, but there's parallels too. The son will be born of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. But then there, there's Jesus, and it just says that he will be great, and it's because he is the Lord. And so there's parallels and there's contrast, but there's two miraculous births that are announced. And as you look at all the things they have in common and all the things they have different, there's one thing that I'm very confident they both have in common. Neither Elizabeth nor Mary was expecting an angel to visit them and expecting to be pregnant. And so God's timing was different than their timing. Look at it in Mary's situation, the first three verses, verses 26 through 29. In the sixth month, and so here we're talking about timing again, it's in reference to the story that was just told in the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's, or inexperienced, actually inexperienced woman's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, and here's the first words, Greetings, you who are highly favored, The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And we'll pause right there right now in the story. Now, 
we talked about God's timing's perfect, right? All this happened to the exact second, the exact minute, the exact day, all that stuff. To just the right person, all those things. Fairer than fall to the ground, hairs on the heads, because he's not, not a mistaken identity, any of that stuff. He comes into this house. Did you notice in verse 29 that it says that Mary is greatly troubled? And why is she troubled? I mean, isn't this like the best news in all of human history? God's son's going to be born. There's going to be redemption for all of mankind. And we read in the passage that we'll do at the Christmas Eve service is going to be the, the shepherds in the field, the angels come. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Good news. This is good news for all of mankind on whom his favor rests. His grace is coming. It's, it's going to be amazing. It's awesome news, right? But she's troubled. Why is she troubled? It's still God's perfect timing. I'm not changing what we talked about last week. But God's timing can be troubling, can it? Especially when it's not ours. When it's not our plan. That's our first point today, that God's timing can be troubling. God's timing can be troubling. Notice I didn't say, God's timing is troubling. Because God's timing is not troubling all the time. I'm talking with a, a friend this week about last week's message, and as we were chatting, I thought he just had a great insight. He, he said that oftentimes we don't even think about God's timing until it's different than ours. It's, it's, you can just go along, and God's timing can be just happening in your life, but then all of a sudden, as soon as it's different than ours, and that doesn't always mean bad stuff. It's, sometimes it's crisis, right? Like that kind of gets our, that'll jar our attention. Something happens, or you know, God, did you allow, and did you cause, and why did this happen, and what's going on? This isn't what I planned. And most of us don't plan crisis, right? I mean, there are people that plan for worst-case scenarios. I've yet to ever ask somebody to go to lunch. Hey, you want to go to lunch on Tuesday? <laughs> got a crisis planned. Sorry, can't. God, i got some free time on Wednesday at 3. If you're going to have something bad happen this week, it'd be great if it fit right there. You know, no one does that, right? But it's often when those things happen that all of a sudden we pay attention to God's timing. And that can be troubling. But in our passage, this isn't a crisis. Mary's not going through uh, bad circumstances here. In fact, these are circumstances people have been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years. People have been anticipating this. They're excited about this. This is the best news that's ever been told to humanity. So this isn't bad circumstances, but I don't know all of Mary's day. I have no idea what she had planned out. I am 100% confident, or at least as confident as I can, 99.9999999 to the, some power that I don't understand. So, okay, the number, confidence. She didn't expect Gabriel to show up and talk to her. Not in this town, not in this way, certainly not with this news. This is troubling. See, sometimes it's not that bad stuff happens. It's just when it's stuff that we don't have planned happens. I remember when... Shannon and I were engaged to be married, and we were getting ready. We did some premarital counseling uh, with a couple that was at our college, Dr. Richard Blumenstock and his wife Helen, and they were an older couple. He was a pastor, professor at the school, uh, a lot wiser than us, told us stuff that he thought that we should know about being married, stuff about, like, fighting, you know, back when we're in the, we're not going to fight, like, we're in love, you know, we're at that stage. And he's telling us stuff, it's like, thank you, appreciate that. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Blumenstock, if you're watching today. Uh, he ended up telling us some things uh, that we had no idea about. I remember one conversation we had, we were having breakfast at the, kind of this country place in the town that we were at, and uh, we're sitting there, and he looks at Shannon, and he asks us about an issue we had talked about before. He said, you guys work through that? She said, yep. Looks over at me, said, you guys work through that? And I said, yep. And he looks at me, and he says, Scott, you guys haven't worked through that. I was like, wait, even she said, what are you talking about? And he started to tell me, he said, Scott, I want to teach you something about your future wife. She doesn't always communicate with her words. Sometimes she communicates with her eyes. Look her in the eyes. I looked her in the eyes, and she was starting to tear up. And she said, he started to tell me, and you and I all work through that. You may have come to a solution. You may have come to a conclusion on this topic, but he wanted to tell me about what he calls the four-hour conversation. 
four-hour conversation goes like this. We tell, every time we uh, do premarital counseling, we always tell people about the four-hour conversation. The four-hour conversation is this. If you've been married for any amount of time, you probably know there are topics that will come up again and again, and you'll work through them, and you'll come to a conclusion. You think it's all done, but it comes up again. That means it's not really worked through all the way yet. And so stuff keeps coming up, and he says the four-hour conversation is this. You block out four hours of time, you're only going to talk about one topic. And so you start talking about that topic, and you work through that topic, and you come to a conclusion. So after about 45 minutes, when you're done working through that, he said, then you talk about that topic some more, because you're going to talk for four hours. That's the point of the four-hour conversation. And once you've beaten the dead horse, and you talk through the topic, then you talk about that topic some more. Then you talk about that topic from a different perspective, and you keep talking about that topic. And that's kind of how that works with the four-hour conversation. And so it's been a great tool for us. It doesn't happen all the time. Every once in a while, we'll have the four-hour conversation. He said, Scott, I want to teach you something, too. He said, this will only come at the worst possible time. So the, the need for this conversation, and he, and he was a pastor at the time. I wasn't a pastor. I didn't understand what it was like. And he started to tell me how Saturday nights are oftentimes for him when this will come. Now, if you've never preached before, I'll tell you what Saturday night's like. Saturday night's tough because you're not just going to give a speech. Like when you preach, you're asking God. Like get, try and grasp this for a second. You're asking God, knowing how broken and messed up you are, to speak through your lips in a way that might change someone's eternity or impact them for some significant thing in their life. And so it's not like giving a speech or like telling some jokes in a story or whatever. So there's like a wait on Saturday night. You don't want to do that. And so at my house, what I do is I just don't make eye contact on Saturday night. It's like, honey, tomorrow morning, I just want to go to sleep, right? And so he's telling me, he starts telling me one of his stories about one of the times on a Saturday night about midnight. He starts having one of the four-hour conversations. He's got to preach the next day and how all this goes. And, and what he was telling me was this. You've got to be sensitive to God's timing. Not just at like some macro level of God's in control or that God does this. He sent his son at just the right time. Not that that's not true, but in your life, like in your marriage and with your neighbors and at work and with your kids and as you're going to buy something at the store and being sensitive to God intervening and doing something other than what you have planned. And that's when God does that. And then oftentimes that's when it's so troubling, isn't it? It doesn't have to be a crisis. It's just different than what we expect. This is certainly different than what Mary expected here. In verse 27, it says it's in the sixth month. She doesn't even know Elizabeth is pregnant. But in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Luke's emphasizing here that this place would be troubling too. It's not just the person that he comes to that would be troubling, although that would be true. It's not just the time that's troubling, and we see that in Mary, but the place is troubling. It's in Nazareth. Now, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you've probably all heard before. It's a little small town. Why would he come to this town? He could have gone to Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff. But it says Nazareth, and then to emphasize, in Galilee. To most of us, that doesn't sound like much. Because if you read the Bible on your own, I hope you do, you start reading the New Testament, you see Galilee all the time, right? See Galilee, and Jesus' ministry is out of Galilee. And can, he goes in different places in Galilee, and the fishermen are from Galilee. And you almost start to think that Galilee is like a holy place. That wasn't the view of the readers that are going to read this. That wasn't the view of other Jews. Jews from Jerusalem viewed Jews from Galilee as second-class citizens. You see it in the things that are said even in Scripture. You see Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, when he first hears about Jesus and Jesus from Nazareth, you know what he says in John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, you can read on your own. Verse 46 on the screen says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Are you kidding me? Nazareth? And then Luke emphasizes not just Nazareth, it's in Galilee. Don't forget, don't miss, these are Galilean Jews. And that meant they were second class. They were second class, let me tell you why. Very simple stuff. Second class because they could only occasionally attend temple services and ceremonies. 
They weren't regulars. They weren't there all the time. And so when they did show up, you know what that felt like? You get that look. You're second class. You don't really belong here. You ever had that look before? Somebody looks at you like, hey, you didn't dress right, or you're at the wrong place. Maybe you came to our country club, or you showed up at the wrong banquet, or the wedding at the wrong time, or maybe even church. That's some first service. Uh, well, before I was a Christian, I was so lost, I didn't even realize that I was offensive to people showing up at certain places. And I used to go to Catholic Mass on Saturday nights. Okay, They have Mass on Saturday nights. And I would go in to kind of get my God thing in before I went out and did my thing. <laughs> so I'd go out partying. And I would wear these T-shirts. I, won't even, I can't even tell you some of the things that my T-shirts would say on them, but they were offensive. And I didn't even realize how bothered some... I wasn't doing it to like you know stick it to the religious person or something. I, I just... I was doing the God thing. I thought God was happier that I was there than I wasn't there, and so I just kind of showed up and went out and did my thing. I did learn, however, how offensive it is once I became a Christian. And I remember it wasn't a Catholic church, it was a Baptist church, and Southbridge is Baptist, for those of you who didn't know, and so I can make fun of Baptists. But what ended up happening was I went to this Baptist church, I showed up at a service, the first time that I wore shorts, okay, to church. And I was, I was out doing some stuff, and I just decided to slide in it. It wasn't real church anyways, it was Sunday night church, for those of you who may remember uh, when that was more popular, it was a 6 o'clock service, so it didn't really count. <laughs> Don't really matter to me. Uh, but I wore shorts into the service, and if someone came up to me and actually said, you look like you've been working in the yard. Yeah, thanks. Like, what do you say to that? Which way to God? You know, <laughs> how do I, what do I do now? <laughs> what happens here? I know what that feels like. Some of you know what that feels like. That's what it felt like to be a, a Nazarene, spiritually speaking. The view was you moved to Nazareth, because you wanted material blessing and you didn't care about spiritual blessing. Because if you wanted spiritual blessing, you'd go where the best teachers were at. They were all in Jerusalem. That's where you were supposed to be. So you'd go to temple all the time. And so God's pointing out here that he went to a place people wouldn't expect. What does that tell us about God? He's bringing a Messiah that's for all mankind. For everybody. It's not just the royal. It's not just the elite. It's not just the intelligent. He's coming for all people. And he comes into this place in Nazareth and Galilee. And look at the person, to a virgin, a young girl, inexperienced girl, sexually inexperienced girl, pledged to be married, and so she's probably about 12 to 14 years old. We'll just say 13 years old. She's 13 years old, and she's pledged to be married, and that means she's not married yet, but it's different than our engagement. It's a little bit more committed than that, but there'd be no sexual relationship, but there'd be a commitment where you'd be husband and wife, and in order to break it off, there had to be divorce or death. And the guy she's pledged to be married to, he's a descendant of David, and her name, it's Mary. And here we find out, this is a, a pretty meager girl. You keep reading the scriptures. You get to Luke chapter 2 and verse 24, and you see after Jesus is born, and they go to dedicate him at the temple because they show up. You know, they're from Nazareth, but they still show up at the temple sometimes. And so they show up, and they offer a sacrifice, two pigeons or two doves, and tells us they're very poor. Leviticus, and Leviticus chapter 15, tells what kind of offerings to offer. But if you can't afford those, you bring pigeons or doves. They're poor. Martin Luther says this about what God could have done in comparison to what God did. He says, God might have gone to Jerusalem and picked Caiaphas' daughter, who was beautiful, rich, clothed in gold-embroidered garments, attended by many women. They would just help her get ready for something like this. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. Ken Hughes, another commentator, says that she was a nobody in the middle of nowhere with nothing ahead of her. And talks about what her life would probably look like had this not happened. She probably would marry humbly. She'd marry Joseph. They'd have a wedding. It wouldn't be a feast, though, like what the custom of the day was, because they were too poor. So they'd have a very humble wedding. She'd give birth to multiple children. They'd all be poor children. 
She'd do laundry. She'd wipe noses. She'd probably never travel further than a few miles from her hometown. And then like thousands before her, she would die. Few would even know she ever existed, apart from her immediate family and a couple friends. Not a terrible existence. Certainly not exciting. But that was her plan. But then this angel shows up and says some things to her that are very troubling. Notice, she's troubled. She hadn't even heard about Jesus yet. Did you notice that? Look at the text. She didn't know anything about being pregnant yet. This news hasn't come yet. And some people debate about why she's troubled. And, and some scholars, scholars, which kind of boggles my mind, say that she's actually troubled by the fact that he's a male angel, as if his gender is the issue here. I think to myself, if you're going to like speculate, how about the fact that he's an angel? Like, Hello? Or maybe the wings protruding from his back? Like, I don't know. I don't know what angels look like either. But <laughs> you've got here that. And so you think, is it the angel? Is it because he's a man? But then you look at the text and it tells us it's neither one of those things, surprisingly. Look at why she's troubled. Mary was troubled at his greetings, at his words. Verse 29. Mary was not just troubled, greatly troubled at his words. And wondered, pondered, introspectively was thinking, what in the world are you talking about? What are his words? Go back up. Verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Another way to say it is, greatly graced. You are the recipient of great grace. Now, some people make a mistake. It's a huge mistake. It's a terrible mistake. Saying we should pray to Mary. We should worship Mary. That's idolatry. That is not true. That is not what the text says. She's receiving something she doesn't deserve. That's grace. You know the other people that are talked about getting that? Through scripture, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, if you're taking notes, it's believers that were bestowed grace upon us. We're given grace. You know why? God's son. But she doesn't even know that's why yet. But she's troubled because he says, highly favored, God is with you. She has no idea how literal that's going to be in a couple moments. But you're highly favored. She's got to be thinking to herself. It says she's wondering. She's speculating in her mind. She's intensely confused. She's got to be thinking to herself, Me? Who, me? Do you not know where we're at? Like, I don't know where you came from, but do you know we're in Nazareth? Do you not realize who I am? And how meager my future is. And by the way, it's still mine. Even though it's meager, it's her plan. It's what she's desiring. Who knows what her dreams were? This humble wedding with Joseph and all that stuff, we know that's going to happen. Maybe she dreamed that Joseph as a carpenter would build her house and put an M and a J on the front door, right? (laughs) That's, That's the dream. It might be a small dream, but it's her dream. It's hers. And she's troubled. There's an anxiety here because she senses things are going to change. Now, we don't know exactly what thoughts are going through her mind, but we do know the rest of the story, and we do know things are going to change. We know a lot of things are going to change, and it's going to mean for Mary surrendering things. There's a divine transaction that takes place here where essentially she's going to say, my times, I change them for your times. And what if that happened for you today? What would that look like? If you were to hand over your plans, your times, whatever they are, and you say, God, whatever you want to do, you do that. Because that's not, that's not really how most of us do our plans, right? Like just If I can be candid with you and how I think it happens for a lot of my friends is really what we do is we're Christians. I've been around church, not trying to exclude God. We're not doing the Jonah thing. We're like running from God. But we've got a plan for our lives, and we know how we want it to go, and we kind of present it to God, and we, even in our prayers, and we say, well, we want you to kind of come alongside us and, and like bless it and make it successful and help it work and be there, like be a part of it. And what if God says to us, I'm not interested in that. You give me the plan and I'll decide how it goes. And that might mean taking our plans, widening it up, throwing it out the window. It might mean some tweaks and some changes, but I'll tell you, you look through scripture 
And you see, anytime God intervenes in somebody's life, how many times do you see God go, I kind of like this one. I'm just kind of long for the ride. Abraham, read, the, read Genesis. You got Abraham, you got Jacob, uh, you got Joseph. So reading these stories. Isaac, Rebecca, read the Samuels. You got Hannah in there, you got Samuel. Uh, start reading some of the, the judges. There come crazy stories in the judges. Read Exodus, you got Moses' story. Jonah, read his story. How many times when you see God intervene in somebody's life, does he say, let's go. This is kind of cool the way it's going. They're not all doing bad stuff. You almost always see that God changes stuff, and that means they have to surrender something. Moses, you know, he's a great cute story, right? Saved out of a basket, goes to live in an Egyptian palace. It's wonderful. But is it all about Moses? No. But he equips them, and he schools them there, and he gets them to learn how those people think, the ones that are holding them in bondage. He's going to go present before the highest officials on behalf of the ones that are in slavery. But in order to do that, you're going to have to leave the palace. You're going to have to give something up. You're going to have to walk away. You think it wasn't hard for Abraham to leave his land? It was an idolatrous land. You don't think he had to lay down some idols? to walk away and follow God? And so what would it be like for us? I mentioned the Moore Square group before the sermon. And they went down and had 30 people trust Christ. Now, some of the folks that are, are friends with me that are a part of that uh, group, they know that I get excited about people trusting Christ. And I'll tell you, I get excited about all life change. It's great as you know, believers take steps of faith and some of those types of things. But isn't there something special about somebody who's lost being found? I mean, think about it from God's perspective. He tells us in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we're spiritually dead. And so when somebody trusts Christ, they're made alive. It's like raising someone from the dead every time someone trusts Christ as their Savior. So I get excited about that. Every story I get excited about. And I've got friends that will tell me, and bridge kids, that they teach a class and they lead somebody to Jesus, or in their small group, they've had somebody come up for a little while. And uh, this more square group, they, they ended up sharing with me a story of some of those people, of the 30 people that trusted Christ. And there was one that stuck out to me. One of our volunteers that were there, what happened is the people were in line for, our, for the meal, and one of our volunteers, his name is Greg, started walking through the line and talking to people. And he stopped. He started talking to this one gentleman, sharing the love of Christ with him. And the guy surrendered his life to Christ in line to get the food. And then he pulled out of his pocket as he surrenders his life to Christ a crack pipe and hands it over. And I thought, how awesome is that? But not only that he's surrendering an addiction and probably what was God to him, and as he's accepting Jesus Christ to be Lord in his life, he's surrendering his old God. But symbolically, what's taking place there? That, that thing that was hindering him from coming to the Lord. You know, some people, before they trust Christ, it's, I don't want to trust Christ because if I do, I'll have to give up. You know, think about what they get in Jesus Christ. You just think about, then I'll have to, I won't be able to, somebody will know, they might find out, all that stuff. That's what that was to him. And for some of you, you've been following Jesus, but you've got stuff that hinders you from really surrendering to his plan. And it might be good stuff. Like for Mary, it's her dreams, it's her plans. That's what she's going to have to surrender. That's her divine transaction. For some of you, you've been holding on to a dream too long, and it's not God's dream. It might not be bad. It might be, you can might see how God could bless it, and how God could be glorified, and how God could work all these things out, and you want God to kind of come along and be a part of it. But it's the very thing that's hindering you from what he wants for you. And so would you surrender that dream to him? Your plans? Or if it, what if it was like that guy, he surrenders that pipe, and the pipe's really symbolic. What would be symbolic for you if God said to you today, you bring to the altar the thing that's symbolic in your life of what it is you're holding back? And I'm not asking you to bring anything to the altar today, but what if he said, you know, your watch, your time, your time, you control all your time, that's the thing for you. It's not money, it's not your family, it's not your dreams, it's your time. Would you bring your watch down to the altar? We don't need watches at the church, so I'm not trying to collect them. 
Or ID badges, maybe it's your ID badge at work, because that's, that's who you are. That's your thing. That's your security. That's your significance. It's that you are a engineer or doctor or teacher or whatever it is. You surrender that because he wants you to do something else. He wants you to be his ambassador rather than that thing. What if it's your wallet or your kids or your marriage? You bring the thing and would you do it? This guy hands over the pipe. Mary hands over her dreams. She doesn't know what the changes are going to be. She doesn't know what it's going to cost her. She has no idea. She knows what it could. She knows things are going to be different. This angel shows up. And that's troubling. God's timing can be, can be troubling. But his plan can be trusted. And that's our second point. Well, God's timing can be, it's always perfect. It can be troubling, even in its perfection. Because from our perspective, we don't know all the stuff that he knows. His ways, our ways. They're not the same. And so in that, there can be some tension. There can be some frustration. We don't understand. We don't all know what's, what's the best thing or what's good. And so the, it can be troubling for us, just the fact that he's changing stuff. But the plan can be trusted. That's what the angel goes on to start to share with Mary. Mary's upset. She's troubled. We read verse 29. This is what he says, the angel says to her in verse 30. But, contrast, the angel said to her, do not be afraid. And here's why. Not just simple words. Hey, you're afraid. Stop being afraid. No, no, not that. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. How did she find favor with God? Because of something she did? No. In fact, if you read this text, it's blatantly obvious that there's nothing stated here about Mary and her virtue and her character. And if you do read verses 1 through 25, it's a very stark contrast because things are stated about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were righteous. They obeyed all of God's commandments. They kept his law. None of that stuff stated about Mary. So to think that Mary's special and that's why she found favor would be totally misrepresenting what's happening here. She found grace just like you and I find grace. Because God, but God. God's initiative. Because of who he is. He steps into our lives. Hard to grasp, hard to deal with. I know. But God... He's given you favor, Mary. You don't, you don't have to be afraid. Just like God's perfect love casts out fear, God's grace casts out fear. Don't be afraid. God's not going to harm you. He's not trying to hurt you. You're not being punished. You might go through some difficult stuff. She's going to be running for her life because people are trying to kill her baby. She's going to be ostracized. She's going to be kicked out. She might be excommunicated from her family. A town would reject her. She doesn't know. She might be killed. It's possible that that could happen. It doesn't, but that's a possibility. But he says, God's grace. It's grace. And then he tells her the news. You'll be with child. You'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great. Isn't that kind of a weak description? (laughs) You think about who Jesus is. He will be great. Talking about cereal? We're talking about Jesus. Like, what are you talking about here? That's the best you could come up with, angel? Like, you were in heaven. You saw all this stuff. Here's the deal. Words just wouldn't get it, would they? Like he could keep putting word after word, magnificent and majestic and stupendous and superior and all that word. But the deal is that Jesus really shows us what greatness means. And he tells us four characteristics of his greatness in the next part of the passage. He says, and he'll be called the son of the most high. John the Baptist is going to be the prophet of the most high. It's the prophet of God. Jesus is going to be the son of God. That means he's equal with God. So he'll be the son of the most high, first one. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's a promise that they would be familiar with from Second Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic throne, that the Messiah will reign on David's throne. So he's not only God's son, he's the promised one. Not only that, Mary, but imagine this, you're 13 years old. 
and he'll reign over his house, the house of Jacob. That means Israel. He's going to be a king. But he's not just any king. He'll reign forever. His kingdom will never end. And so he's the son of God. He's the promised one. He is a king, and he is a different kind of king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will reign forever. And he's going to come from your womb, Mary. And while it's true that there was nothing special about Mary, that Mary received this as total God's grace, what a unique role. What a blessed place she's in. Unique among all women, Mary. And she should be honored. And we should look at, imagine what it was like to be Mary. Can you even imagine, one, be 13-year-olds and try and process this stuff? But then my my wife and I, we watched the, the Nativity with our kids this week. Nativity movie. It's a movie I recommend it. It's a great movie. And there was something about seeing Jesus portrayed as a baby. Like, we talk about his humanity, we know the story, but then to see, they showed a face of a, a little innocent, really looked like a newborn baby. You know, sometimes in movies, the kid's like three, but anyway, it's like a newborn baby. A little face, you know, they can barely open their eyes, their lips are just there, and seeing how fragile he was, and, and how dependent, and how little and innocent. And that was the Jesus, like, and think about what it was like to be Mary and to nurse that child. Have you ever nursed a baby? in the nursery, your own baby, or whatever it was, with a bottle, or however you want to do the, get on all that stuff. But just think about what it was like for Mary. Mine starts to go, but anyway, yeah, yeah, I will not keep going on that one. <laughs> you know, sorry. Um, but to look down into that face, like think about what that was like. That's what my wife started talking about. We were chatting about this baby. To look into the face of Jesus, Mary got to look into his face unlike anybody else, nursing that child. And then, get this, to then go... That's my nose. Mary is the only person who ever did that with Jesus. Hey, those are my lips. Like resemblance of yourself in the face of Jesus. How amazing is that? And I'll try and imagine just for a minute what it was like to be Mary and try and process some of this stuff. And she's inexperienced and she's young. She's different than 12 and 13-year-olds that we know. She doesn't have an iPad, okay? She's never ridden in a car, never watched a video on YouTube, never seen any of this stuff. Okay? She's never even seen Walmart, okay? I know, I know Lazarus is small, but come on. They're different than, than kids that we know. But apparently her parents had had the talk with her. Because she knew she hadn't done what she needed to do to have a baby. So this whole king of kings and lord of lords and all that stuff, just the fact she's going to be pregnant, she asked the natural question, how? <laughs> how? Look at the next verse, verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her. So here's the answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Oh, now I get it. Right? I don't know what health classes Mary had. They didn't talk about this. This had never happened before. So what kind of situation is Mary in? Mary's got to trust. Seems like Mary knows as a 13-year-old inexperienced girl, his ways are ways. They're not even close. But he can be trusted. And she doesn't ask, ask for a vision. She gets one, verse 36. The angel tells her, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. And so she doesn't know this yet, but she gets this sign that God can open wombs, just like what happened with Sarah in the Old Testament, just like what happened with Hannah. This is going to tell you what happened with your, your relative. Let me make it personal to you, Mary. And so just, if you're even doubting this could be possible, let me tell you. God's already doing miraculous stuff. Now what's going to happen to you is different, but let me give you the summary statement, verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. Amen? Amen. Some people need to hear that today. For nothing is impossible with God. And I don't know what's happening in your life. 
But just pastorally, let me say this. Nothing's impossible with God. I don't know what it is that's taking place, what it is that might be holding you back from following Jesus. And you think, but I could never. He would never love me. What about his? And he couldn't be gracious with me like that because nothing is impossible with God. I don't know what's going on in your relationships. Nothing is impossible with God. Health, nothing is impossible with God. Now, does that mean he'll do whatever we wish and we want? No. Can he do whatever he wants? Yes. Will he do everything he says? Yes. It doesn't matter how impossible it sounds. He will do. Is he coming back? Yep. He says he is. Is he coming this time? Yep. Different than they expected? Yep. Because they weren't studying the scriptures. Everything he says he's going to do, every promise that he makes, he will keep. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That sounds like a tough promise. We sing this song about love. Hey, there's going to be a time where you're going to know fully. That's what Paul says. He says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I don't know everything fully yet. I just see in a mirror darkly. Three things are going to remain. Faith, hope, and love. But one remains. One's greater than all those other ones. Love. You're going to really know love one day. That's God's promise. Nothing is impossible with God. Oh, that's... Let me just pause here. The promises are only for people who place their faith in Jesus. You wonder why your prayers sometimes don't get answered, that you don't feel like you're connected with God? It's because you don't know him. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. So all the stuff I just talked about, only for people who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody who has not, that's what you have to do. But for those of you who know Jesus Christ, nothing is impossible. He'll do all those things in your life. Everything that he's promised in the scripture, you can claim as yours. Nothing is impossible. That's the summary. That's the real explanation. The Holy Spirit overshadowing. There's imagery there of the tabernacle uh, and the glory of God in the Old Testament and some of those things. But it's not like all of a sudden she goes, oh, now I get it. And it's never happened. And so she has to trust. And then look at what she says. I am the Lord's servant. Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may it be to me as you have said. And that's the end of the encounter. The angel left. It's really a pretty quick encounter especially considering the magnitude of what took place. And I've preached this passage before. Every Christmas, it's the same story. <laughs> I've preached here, been multi-year for multiple Christmases, and I'm always struck by that statement she makes, may it be to me as you have said. But the one that really got me this week was the phrase right before that, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. What a perspective, Mary. I am the Lord's servant. And you think about that, and all the things that are happening, and she's troubled, she's troubled in her spirit, she hears about God's grace and the explanation, all that stuff. But then she says this perspective. It's not like she was expecting to give birth to the, the Messiah. Like, about time you showed up, angel. You know, kind of a, I've been working for this my whole life, you know. Sometimes we have this mentality that God's going to do like what we want him to do. It's because we act like his plan and our plan and he's supposed to bless it and all that other kind of stuff and we're not really surrendered to him and we don't have a servant mentality. We've got this mentality that he's supposed to do all this stuff for us. And our prayers aren't really prayers. They're more like wishes. I wish you would do these things, Jeannie, and if you would just answer them divinely somehow. And, and I look at it and I think, how many times, how many times am I like Peter in the Gospels? Where you see Peter, and Peter has to hand something over at one point in his ministry. Remember when he first gets called to come follow Jesus? And what he has to leave is his business. This is in Mark chapter 1, what happens in Mark chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that Jesus comes and he, he calls, and he's calling Peter and James and John and Andrew, and he calls them to come follow him, and it says that then they, they left their nets. He said, come follow me, Jesus said, and they followed him. At once they left their nets, that would be like their job was their thing that was hindering them from fully surrendering, so they leave it there. And they leave dad there, which is an interesting aspect if you think about it from dad's perspective. <laughs> Go follow Jesus. I'll clean up all the fish, I guess. I mean, we don't know from dad's perspective, but they left. 
They leave everything. They leave their business. They leave their families. They leave everything to go follow Jesus. And you think, like, then they're good, right? And sometimes we get into that perspective as believers. Like, I turned my back on. I left the crack pipe. I left the thing. I laid it down. I'm following you now. And we're good. No, no, no. Keep reading the scriptures. It's progressive. There's new things as time goes by. And and you see what happens three years later. Peter's been following Jesus for three years now. As hard as it can be, you do something for three years, you get used to it. You kind of get in the groove. You get a routine. And now it's not a a net that he needs to lay down. What ends up happening in Mark chapter 8 is that Jesus starts to tell them, here's God's plan. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders. They're going to kill me. That's God's perfect plan. And Peter's thinking, no, 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 I know a better plan than that. Look at Mark chapter 8. We'll put some verses up on the screen. He spoke to them plainly about this. Jesus did. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter doesn't think he knows more than Jesus. Like, put yourself in Peter's place. He, he gets who's the master, and they want to be the greatest, like second in command or third and fourth and however all that works. But, but Jesus is always the one. They, are, they get that. But Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Now, Peter, he wanted what was best for Jesus. He could see how this would work out for God's glory. Then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. Because Peter wasn't trying to worship Satan here. He says, here's the deal. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's your plan, Peter. You know what you need to lay down now? It was a net three years ago. Now you need to lay down your plan. Because God's got a different plan. His plan is perfect. It might be troubling to you, Peter. It might be difficult for you to understand, but his ways, your ways, not the same. You're going to surrender the plan? And the real question becomes for us, you know, you talk about trusting him. What do I do when his timing is troubling? What do I do when it gets to that place where things aren't working out the way that I thought they were going to work out, the way that I want them to happen? What do you do then? And I think about it for myself. I, th- I think about it for us as a church. I think we just, you know, we just went through this campaign, that whatever it takes campaign, to raise money to build a more permanent facility and some of those types of things. And, and I'll tell you, you know what my timing is for us to have a more permanent facility? Like right after this service, we're going to walk over there, okay? Or yesterday is really, probably like a couple of years ago would be really my timing for facility. Now, we had this campaign. God worked in an amazing way. Gen- people were generous, all that stuff. But what's becoming evident to us as we look at the cost and the dollars that we have is while we planned, we desired to break ground in the spring of 2013, that's probably not going to happen. So was God wrong? Or maybe... Like his ways. And our, but I can see. I'm like Peter. Like, God, if you would just do this. No, no, no. I'm talking about that death stuff. Like, listen, if you do this, then I can see more people coming to Christ. And I can see us being better at equipping people during the week. And do you understand the things that we could do now that we're not able to do currently? Like, forget just that it's tiring to sit up and tear down. Do you see the... I got, I got, I, God, listen to me. I know a plan. And, and then you can either, like, try and manipulate that. Or what are you supposed to do? Would you read the scriptures? You know what the scriptures show us to do in these times? These times are great times because they're teachable times. You go to the Word. What does the Word say? What promises do you have that actually apply to the situation? How are you going to direct us? You pray. You seek Him. You wait. You pause. You don't just start doing, well, God, what are you trying to do right here? What are you trying to say? You see godly counsel. You go to other people that you believe are in the Word, that are in prayer, that are wiser, that have more experiences. And you, you talk to them. And forget the context of a building or not a building, and, and whether it's working out your way or not. Any context you can place it in, that's what you do. You stop. You say, your ways, they're different than my ways. What are you trying to show me about your ways? How do you want me to trust? And you talk about seeking a multitude of godly counsel. We were 
we were meeting this week as elders and, and our leadership team, and we were talking through some of these things and the campaign and the building and the time frame and all that stuff. And one of the resounding themes that came out, multiple different people, was one thing's clear, we're at a very teachable moment. And I don't know where you're at personally and what's going on in your life, but when you're at that place where your timing and God's timing, they don't seem to meet and maybe they clash. They don't, it's it's not, and all of a sudden you're paying attention to God's timing. What a great place because now you're at a teachable moment. And the question is, can you say like Mary, I am the Lord's servant. Do you know what she's saying there? It's the word for a handmaid. It's the lowest form of a servant. If you keep reading, I challenge you to, you keep reading this passage, you get to a song that she sings. And in the song she says, essentially, my body, it's yours. My spirit, it's yours. My soul, it's yours. Everything is yours. My marriage, it's yours. Joseph, he's yours. My womb, yours. Times, yours. Plans, yours. That's all yours. That's what she's saying. She says, I'm a servant. That's the only reason she's able to say the next statement. May it be to me as you have said. And I ask you, you, I could say, can you say the statement, may it be to me as you've said? You might bow your head and pray, may it be to me as you've said. But the real question is, do you view yourself as the Lord's servant? That you're actually here for his glory, to fulfill his plan. Not he's some resource for us to use to fulfill ours. So that's the real question. His timing, it will be troubling. But will you trust it? There will be times when it will be troubling, but in those times, can you, will you trust him? Let's pray. Our Father, our God, gracious, glorious, holy, and righteous God, God, will you you speak to each of our hearts right now? You know the circumstances, you know the situations, you know all the details of everything that's happening in every heart as their, their heads bowed before you right now. God, will you speak? Father, I pray if there are any that need to trust your son Jesus as their savior right now, and maybe they've been counting the cost, and maybe they've been thinking through, but if I, then I'm going to lose, will you overwhelm them with what they receive in your son Jesus Christ, that he is great, that he is your son, that he is the promised king who will rule and reign and paid the debt for their sins that they couldn't pay and died for them. And I just ask right now, everybody still in a spirit of prayer with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, If you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior right now, will you please not wait another moment? That you would trust Jesus. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift, he's offering you a gift. The same as you get a gift on Christmas, somebody hands it to you, what you have to do is receive it. Will you receive that gift tonight? Will you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? If you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, what's stopping you? What's hindering you? Will you hand that over to him? Will you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? If you do, if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ right now, you can do it simply by praying. You were given a worship program on your way, and inside that worship program is a connection card. Would you just mark on that card that you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior today? We want to pray for you. We've got some resources for you. If you want to talk to someone after the service, we have a response team that will be up here. And for anybody who wants to talk or pray about anything, there will be a response team that will be available, uh, both male and female, that would love to speak with you, pray with you, just even listen to you. Father, I pray for... For those that need to trust Jesus as Savior, they would do that right now. I pray for those of us who have surrendered our life to you. And maybe we feel like, oh, now we're good. Now we got it. And that you're asking us to take that next step. And there's something new. It's a progressive handing stuff over. And there's something new you want us to surrender. And I pray that you lay that on our heart. Maybe it's our dreams. Maybe it's our time. Maybe it's our plans, our, our resources, our identity, our whatever it is, God. I pray that we'd surrender it to you. Will you speak to each heart individually? And will you get us to the place where we can say that we're your servant? And then we'll do whatever you want. We're yours. We've been bought at a price. We fully belong to you. 
And the price was paid by your son, Jesus Christ. Will you use our lives however and whatever way you desire? Send us wherever you want us to go. Have us do whatever you want us to do. Say whatever you want us to say. In Jesus' name I pray.